1: Welcome to New Books and Environmental Studies. I'm your host, Katie McEwen. On today's show, I'm speaking with Stacey Alimo, the author of Exposed Environmental Politics and Pleasures in Posthuman Times, which was published last year by the University of Minnesota Press. Exposed is a series of essays that collectively argue for a new ethics of living in the Anthropocene. And though it bridges an impressive scope of both topics and theory, it excessively and very enjoyably calls us to rethink what it means to be human. Combining film, fiction, poetry, scientific writing, art, and activism, Alima explores the relationship between pleasure and environmental politics through both human and non human agency and subjectivities. Though often playful, this book has serious implications for how we think about the world and how we live in it. So, I want to talk through the book in the specific chapters, because each one really does kind of act as a standalone essay, even though the theme of exposed and exposure runs through them. So in the first chapter, um, you ask if it would be possible to redesign the domestic with an ethics of inhabiting such that the domestic does not domesticate and the walls do not disconnect. I think this is a really powerful way of thinking about a new ethics of, of habitation of dwelling. So so what do you mean what do you mean by that and what would it look like in practice
0: Well the, the the opposite of what I'm thinking about is the kind of standard sterility and lifelessness with this emphasis on on cleanliness and propriety and borders that is connected with classism and racism and a real post 9/11 bunker mentality Um so I think that you know ideally i can envision all homes apartments communities cities being seen as multi-species habitats so if we start if you start off with the sense that the world even with human inhabitation is actually multi-species or could be a rich multi-species habitat then architecture and planning and especially landscaping can all work around that. So if you start with the needs of various plant and animal species, even if it's only birds, butterflies, insects, reptiles, um, hopefully maybe some other exciting things like coyotes, um, w- whatever could inhabit but also migrate through the space, all of those things need to be taken into account. Um, and I envision something like Lynn Hall's beautiful raptor roofs where she considers what would aesthetically appeal to the raptor and thinking about this kind of both in terms of needs but also the, almost as an, an aesthetic that's multi-species. But the, the 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 joy here is this sense of openness to, and, and this is where the exposure would come in this chapter, I suppose, this kind of openness to the beauty, the pleasure, the liveliness, and the surprise of inhabiting a world with multiple species, not just these um, pristine, dead, sterile, um, demarcated zones. I didn't say in practice really what... What that would look like but in you know in my own yard i practice this as much as i can i, I build little little habitats for for the lizards and, and some of the insects and i plant things for the butterflies and the birds and um i really i really love that even though i live in the city I, there's a lot of wildlife that comes into my yard
1: and so th- that relates to the idea of multi-species pleasure. And in the next chapter, which I think is probably my favorite my favorite chapter of the book, you um you speak about queer animals and non-human sexual diversity. Um it's also a very playful chapter, which is a, despite the seriousness of of many of the concepts and ideas and experiences that you're taking on in this book, there is a very playful element to it. Um, and this chapter really merges that idea of playfulness and pleasure. So I'm wondering if you can Tell me a bit about how thinking about queer animals, as you do in this chapter, um, could lead to a queer environmentalism.
0: Well, I do think that, especially in this uh, very bleak time of the sixth grade extinction and climate change um, and the acceleration of assaults upon all sorts of of ecologies and environments, that um, people who are deeply committed to environmentalism do need to have some kind of pleasure because otherwise it's just so bleak. So fostering that, that kind of pleasure is something that, that has been talked about by environmentalists. Um, Andrew Ross spoke about this. Kate Sandylands has spoken about this and um, and other people, um, Dan Philippon. Um And I'm, I have to say that I'm really happy that that uh, a Greek queer environmental activist is translating this chapter into Greek. Um, for an activist zine that comes out of Athens, so um, he must see some kind of um, some sense that this does have some kind of political resonance. I'm, I'm happy about that. So, because of the historical association of the of queer with unnatural. Um, Queer cultural theory has has not really been interested in nature, and part of this has to do, too, with all of the divides with, with uh, post-structuralism and uh, discursive, um, the sense of social construction in, in which um, everything relevant to cultural criticism happens within a sphere of nature and language discourse and, and, or I mean, within culture, language, discourse, and, and the um Anything in nature or or non-human is relegated to this kind of universe of of irrelevance. So I think anything that subverts or erodes this kind of nature culture divide um, is important, and I think that contemplating the sexual diversity of non-humans, who are so much more fabulously queer than humans, can help to do that, because instead of seeing nature as this Stable heteronormative background to a culture that that is much more exciting um, You can see you can erode that kind of chasm there that boundary and see all sorts of sites of a multitude of animal cultures that are rich with queer practices, so then The natural world then becomes a place that is not hostile And not heteronormative um, so I'm hoping I'm hoping that this realization that nature is is not so straight as it has been portrayed. It's not this kind of realm of heteronormativity would help to encourage the, the flourishing of all kinds of um, environmentalisms that are queer and uh, queer politics that also does ally itself with environmentalism.
1: And beyond non-human sexual diversity, another facet of intimacy, let's say, that you speak about in the book, is the role of nakedness in protest. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about nakedness in environmental protest and then also its relationship um, to physical places.
0: Yeah, I mean, that th- those chapters are probably the most literal form of exposure just because people are, are taking off their clothes for these protests. Um, I got really interested in them and interested in whether there's a way of thinking about them that beyond the kind of obvious. Um, And they do seem to literally embody this sense of how the flesh is intermeshed with place, and they seem to me a kind of per, a sort of undoing of the humanist human, because without the clothing, um, when when these bodies are sort of as they often are in the, in um, laid out onto particular landscapes, spelling out words, um, they there's a sense of 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 the physicality of the body expressing this real interconnection with the place with the planet with the ecosystems um and it, to me it seems like a kind of um a kind of critique of of the notion of the public sphere as only about uh political discourse or um or, or something mediated only electronically, even all these image even though these images are mediated electronically that for environmentalism and for um, animal rights protests, it seems particularly important to have the the protest be about the fact that humans are literally enmeshed and substantially interconnected with the material realm and with places and so that environmentalism doesn't just seem like one among many human ideas, that there's something there um, that expands what the realm of the political would be.
1: Another important aspect or a a theme that you talk about in the book is insurgent vulnerabilities. And you specifically use this term in relation to carbon-heavy masculinities, that somehow insurgent vulnerability can be an antidote or a response to carbon-heavy masculinities. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, um, so you know, I almost wish I hadn't written that chapter because now, my god, with with Donald Trump as president, it just becomes <laughs> every day is an example of carbon heavy masculinities every day in the news there's there's another another example of this, which is um, just so frightening to witness. Um, the, the term, I'll start with the term carbon heavy masculinity. So I, I take that back to Susan Jefford's early work on, on masculinity as hard bodies, the hypermasculinity of that, and also connect it with Bonnie Mann's idea of the militarized masculine aesthetic. And, of course, in Texas, you see this all the time because you see these these gigantic trucks with the sort of militarized uh, paraphernalia all around them, spikes coming out of the wheels. Um, It it looks like it's out of, as my colleague Tim Richardson said, it looks like, you know, we're living in Mad Max here. Um, It's crazy. Um, And there's a real uh, sense of being armored, impermeable, aggressive. And this fantasy of that, that you're you're protected, you're able to protect yourself from from the outside and actually dominate everything on the outside. So the opposite of that, you know, I didn't want to make the opposite of that be this kind of openness as only vulnerability, but instead a real feminist sense of um occupying. As an aesthetic or as an ethics, also aesthetics, I suppose, and a a politics, where you're occupying vulnerability, you're you're, you have a kind of intentionality there, which makes it an insurgent vulnerability. So it's uh, you're occupying it as a political act, a kind of radical openness. that shows this interconnection between people, places, and non-human life, and the sense of being exposed. So practicing exposure in a political way does not mean being simply vulnerable or simply sort of victimized by that, but expressing it against a kind of carbon-heavy masculinity, which to me is a complete uh, delusion um, it's a very, it's a very dangerous delusion, um, an aggressive delusion of impermeability. Um, so occupying permeability in an insurgent way, to me, is a kind of counter politics then. So,
1: Stacy, I want to move on to the next two chapters, the last two substantive chapters of the book, which are specifically about aquatic materialism. And the first one discusses ocean conservation and the aquatic origins of humans. And it asks this very important question, which is to what extent can transcorporeality extend through the seas? And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that question and where it comes from and, if possible, the answer answer to it.
0: So I was trying to imagine um, a kind of test case for transcorporeality and whether the sense of being materially intermeshed with the world and with ecosystems and creatures could extend far beyond um, the place where most of us find ourselves, which is certainly not um, in the middle of the sea. So what I started with though in this chapter was I, I started with um, the way in which many uh, scientists and conservationists who try to drum up um, some kind of uh, support for ocean ecologies start with this idea that, that the human that human origins are from the sea. So the evolutionary origins of the humans uh, are in um, aquatic life, in sea life in an aquatic ancestor. and of course that goes all the way back um, to Darwin's the, the hermaphroditic creature that Darwin talks about is great for queer ecologies um, but but what I found is, um, is some of the some of the science writers um, actually scientists, who talk about this end up having the, the human as as the endpoint, so that's a familiar story of the human as the evolutionary endpoint, so there are all of these there are all of these um, creatures these fishy creatures within us, supposedly. Um, a whole aquarium we're teeming like an aquarium of fishes, and then it all culminates in the human, and then the ocean becomes this kind of uh, giant apothecary that is just about improving the human lives. Um, and of course, uh, that is not a very useful vision for any kind of environmentalism or posthumanism. So um, I think that what's what's more important is to think about, the various ways in which um, humans are interconnected with ocean ecologies now, both in um, terms of, of risk to, to humans, but then also the way in which our daily practices affect um, the ocean ecology. So the, the two ways the two ways where this comes out most explicitly, of course, obviously the first would be the, the consumption of seafood. So anyone who eats seafood is Um, is connected in a transcorporeal way to ocean ecologies, because that seafood is riddled with mercury, um, maybe dioxins, um, microplastics, and other things, maybe radiation. Um, And so the consumption of seafood links the human health to the health of the seas. But uh, the other the other side would be something like even if you don't eat seafood, daily use of plastic um, is affecting the oceans. So um, I've been you know as far as transcorporeality goes, I'm really interested in how daily life, which seems um, very banal, very benign, can actually at the scale um, at which you know, you put everybody together, it creates this other scale, so so you do some kind of tiny thing, like throw away a plastic bottle cap, and then that plastic bottle cap ends up killing all of these, all of these um, birds um, that eat it, or fish who eat it, and so the, the sense of, of the, the very, the the embodied sense of of the things around us that we use in our everyday life having this enormous impact and how you think about that scale and what that means for ethics and politics and then how you trace those um, interacting material agencies um, is something I'm I'm really interested in. And I'm really happy to see the creative um, and quite compelling Art, artistry and activism with, say, the, the Plastic Pollution Coalition videos that are really funny and um, something like Pam Longobardi's work where she's working on ocean plastic. She's doing all sorts of exciting work in that area. Um, and I think that the scientists, the activists, the artists, the theorists, we're all sort of working on similar issues, which is how to think about the agencies and the implications of of these, these seemingly banal and benign acts that have profound effects on ocean ecologies.
1: So the activist projects that you describe in the book clearly show the need for more careful thought regarding the ethics of living as humans in the Anthropocene. But you also specifically discuss some of the problems of the concept of the Anthropocene and how it's used. Can you tell me what some of those problems are and um, what are some ways that we could rethink this concept or this age of the Anthropocene?
0: When I was asked to uh, speak at the Anthropocene Feminisms Conference, um, that was really the first time I I started uh, researching that topic and that term. And, uh, of course, it it proliferated. It it spread everywhere so quickly. And the the popular culture um, renditions of it, were depicted in term, visually depicted, all the same way. So basically, the way to get a handle on the scale, the time scale of the Anthropocene, seemed to be to scale back out into space and look at the Earth from either outer space or at least from up in the sky somewhere. Now that that scaling back, I mean, it it, it, it performs an obvious function and it does show the extent. To which humans have changed, to have altered the planet, um, at least in its um, sort of visible and in invisible ways, like in terms of the the, the photographs of the lights that, that um, are shown on one Anthropocene website, or of course all all of the buildings and highways and, and things like in the the Bertinsky um, film. But uh, what it it there's two problems with with that visual depiction. One you cannot see any other creatures it's it's it's, there's it's a it's a creatureless dead world so um there's there's no no sense of of non-humans and migration routes either whale migration routes or bird migration routes so even though you're seeing from from this distance you're only mapping human impact and there's almost no discussion of other creatures which is which is very eerie um but but they other thing that i'm interested in is how that perspective and i draw on Donna Haraway's um important piece situated knowledges for this how that perspective is this kind of god trick where it's transcendent and it re in it places the human knower um far away from the scene uh, out in space um and then again it, it is another way i think of Feeling as if we have power and control because we have this transcendent knowledge that removes us and we are in this free floating um, position where we're disembodied again. And I think that the, the, the sense of the Anthropocene has to be at a scale where humans can act and where we are Connected. So, with with transcorporeality, the idea that that all of these um, or or the, the sense of exposure in terms of toxins, um, you can think of your own flesh already being a kind of anthropocene flesh because um, our bodies already have all of these xenobiotic chemicals in them. Um, we're not separate from this. Um, strange world that we have ended up altering or creating or manufacturing by accident um and so the, the sense of agency has to be more complicated it can't just be this sort of free-floating human and what we have done to the planet and so in my critique of Depeche Chakrabarti's work I um make similar arguments um as I do with the visual depictions, because he talks about the human as a kind of abstract force. So, what is the anthropos in the Anthropocene? The human is this kind of abstraction, and and again, we're sort of removed from the scene and disembodied. And I think that's not helpful. I, th- I don't, I don't, I don't see a, a way of inhabiting that sense of what we are in any way that that is useful.
1: So tell me then about the, the final chapter of the book, which is called Your Shell on Acid, which is a great title. Um, tell me what it means. What, what, is it, what does my shell on acid mean, and why is it important for us to contemplate our shells on acid?
0: So I was looking for other ways of thinking about the Anthropocene. And because my work now is, is um, going to focus on the ocean, the last third of this book does focus on the ocean quite a bit, um, and so one thing that's often left out of, of the Anthropocene is the ocean, and a lot of it is, is the, the Anthropocene um, images that are available focus mainly on um, terrestrial formations. So one um, one image that was circulating that I thought was quite compelling was an image of a pteropod. That was um, dissolving because of acidification, and some of those some of those images were, were really beautifully done, uh, quite stark and elegant. And there's no creature within the pteropod as it's as it's shown. It's, it's just this beautiful, delicate shell. Um, in the videos, it's spinning around as it dissolves, and I was thinking about that as a kind of aesthetic enticement. To lure us into contemplating the extent, the possible extent of ocean acidification and ocean ecologies, and the way in which the Anthropocene for the sea, but then also more broadly in terms of the sixth great extinction, could be thought as this kind of dissolve, as as creatures dissolving. Um, and the, the, the shell asks us to sort of project ourselves into that, the aesthetics and this kind of psychedelic sense of the spiral, you know, the sort of mind altering spiral that you might find on a on some kind of druggy poster or something for hallucinogens um, that can connect here. And, and I use Richard Doyle to help with that, with his concept of the ecodelic, but, but I'm looking for figurations that help us think about something that's very difficult to contemplate because acidification is just this slight shift in the alkalinity of the ocean. And in order to have any kind of power as um, to provoke environmental concern and to extend environmental concern to the deep seas, we need figurations to think with and we – probably need some things that are a little bit enticing, whether because they're sort of mind-altering and psychedelic or whether they're aesthetic or, um, or something to make that kind of connection with these ocean ecologies that we're not at all connected with in our daily lives.
1: So tell me then about the notion of dwelling in the dissolve, accompanying the idea of your shell-on acid is this idea that we are all then dwelling in the dissolve as our shell kind of or as the shell evaporates as it succumbs to acidification what are some ways that we can then stay present with the environmental issues that we are facing and not be overwhelmed by them which i think is is connected to that notion of dwelling and then dissolve
0: yeah um i'm not sure i can say much more than than i than i just did about that and it's in terms of exposure, of course, it's a kind of extreme test case of exposure to, to, to imagine oneself dwelling in this dissolve. But maybe, you know, maybe the dissolve is, is important, too, because it can link. It can be sort of the opposite of the commodified consumerism in which everything is a separate object and that these objects are there for human use for human utility and this sense of of, of thinking through the extinction in the sixth grade extinction the extinction of many creatures and then um specifically ocean acidification and and the sense of the ocean as a liquid a watery world rather than a solid world um can keep maybe enticing us to think about these long, vast interconnections and realms of causation and effect and the kind of um, ethics of exposure that extends. So, you know, again, to go back to the first chapter, that's sort of the opposite of, of walling yourself off in your apartment or house as this very controlled space where it is only about the human and it's all about separation. So capitalism and the commodification of goods are all about um, these separate entities that the human uses uh, or consumes versus – to go again back to the sort of to link the first chapter to the last chapter, this sense of being immersed and enmeshed in uh multi species, material agencies, liveliness, um, even though we're talking about death with the dissolve, there's there, there's still a sense of of of, of biological processes happening and, and that the world is not just a collection of objects for our use or entertainment value, but instead it, there is this um, there is this material world of ecosystems and things living, things dying, um, creatures living and dying, ecosystems working or failing or being assaulted. That you know, the more that we think that we're enmeshed within that, that we're connected with that. I mean, I think that that's the basis of environmentalism, environmental consciousness, and I think that you know the way in which our world is an anthropocene world in which things are so humanly, you know, most people live in in such humanly um, designed, manufactured, and altered spaces where you know the only non humans can be rats or or cockroaches or something that that. That does not that's a, that's a huge barrier to even caring about about any kind of um, broader environmental question.
1: you mentioned that you're now working on a project specifically about the ocean. Um, can you tell me more about that project? What are you working on
0: so that project does begin with this question of you know how is it possible to um, entice people to care about about deep sea creatures so um uh, it starts it starts with william Beebe's Descents in the 30s and um he was a he was a scientist and explorer but he was also a popularizer and he wrote uh books and then he also had this this amazing artist els bostelman um who painted these surreal depictions of, of the creatures and the the on the bathysphere dives um i'm interested in that and i'm very interested in the the senses of marine life And the way in which the the census of marine life has incorporated so much of the aesthetic into what they do. So they have art projects, they have coffee table books, they have these beautifully produced and highly stylized photographs and videos. And I'm thinking about the extent to which the aesthetic can kind of um, shift the terrain of political concern. So I've used um, some Ranciere for that and, um, also, some latour to think about wh- how the aesthetic interacts with the with the political. Because for the deep sea creatures, since they're not you know they're not domesticated, they're not dogs. We don't live with jellyfish. We don't live with um, with octopus, um, and they're not our close kin like primates. Uh, there are not that many avenues for fostering a kind of uh, creaturely concern or environmental ethics or animal ethics toward those creatures. So I'm thinking about the aesthetic as really one of the few avenues of, um, of enticing or provoking a kind of um, environmentalism that would extend the deep seas and the other pelagic or open ocean areas.
1: Stacey, thanks very much for your time. You've been extremely generous over multiple interviews with it. Um, so I'm going to just ask you one final question: If you could tell me about one book that's influenced your thinking on the environment or your interest in environmental issues,
0: I think uh, Donna Haraway's *Primate Visions* is is quite the masterpiece. One of the things I admire about that book is that it was it was a very early book um, on that 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 focused on animal Ethics and which she doesn't use this term, but post-humanism or kind of critical post-humanism in animal studies. But it also at the same time. Um, focused attention on critiques of, of racism and sexism and colonialism. And she was able to juggle all of those things and just perform these. These. Um, very rich and illuminating uh, multi-dimensional analyses within that text the, the other thing about that book is that it, it was very early in the sense of a of, of being a new materialist work in that um, she's very influenced and she uses post structuralism uh, but she also she talks about not of peeling back the layers of the onion, but you still want to have something there, so it's it's a very uh it's one of the first works I think that talks about wanting to retain the kind of incisive critique that post structuralism, especially post structuralist feminism or uh, post structuralist race studies uh, gave us um, wanting to retain that kind of incisive critique, but then also have a sense of of allowing material realities the material world and even for her she talks about the animals helping to author the stories that she's telling and so she has these kind of crossings uh, methodologically that that she's trying to um, trying to emphasize there between the human and the non-human in terms of her methodology and so I think that that book was was really important for me in in, um, my starting to think about new materialism and material feminism, but I also think it's it's a model work in terms of a kind of uh, science studies and cultural studies and environmental studies, um, in which she's doing so many things at once and juggling and balancing them all as they intersect.
1: Stacy, thanks so much for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It was a, a great pleasure.
1: my conversation with Stacey Alimo, professor of English at the University of Texas at Arlington. She's the author of Exposed, Environmental Politics and Pleasures in Post-Human Times. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you're listening again next time.